I have this. I don't know if it works. We tested it. What it really is, of course, is a tie tack. <laughs> that's, that's why I agree. It's going to go right there. That impressive. <laughs> there in the back. That powerful presence. Yes, sir. Maybe it's too loud. Maybe it's on a one-second delay and it will confuse me the whole day and I'll shut it off. Okay, let's see. Where are we? Now, first things first. Those of you who've been here for the last few weeks know that, uh, that we have been in course the book of Genesis because it relates to Matthew. Doing the Beatitudes. Those of you who have not been here do not know that Cindy and I have been involved in the staff pool for the NCAA basketball tournament. And of course, I have been getting massacred. Cindy is way ahead. Way ahead. I cannot catch it. Even if all my teams win, Cindy still wins. It's delight, Cindy. So I now have to choose whatever small victory that I can get. And I got it yesterday. God rewarded me because Cindy has picked Arizona, and Arizona was massive. <laughs> they, they were beat by the Mormons. See, I can talk over her now. I have a microphone. <laughs> they were beat by the Mormons. Not only were they, they were beaten like a rented mule, they were beaten by beaten like a red-headed stepchild. They were had the mucus beat out of them, and so on, and therefore... <laughs> Very, very pleased with that, as you can tell. Uh, how does that relate to the sermon? Well, it kind of does, you know, because I take delight in her failure if I am, in fact, failing myself. Failure wants company. So that does. You wait. You'll see that it does apply. Okay, where are we and where are we going? That's a good question. That's a very good question in this church. Where are we and where are we going? Well, we have left off. Where are we? Um, you know, Billy Graham got asked, where are where are we once? He was in a, in a town, and he wanted to go to the post office, and he asked an old guy, he said, where's the post office? And I said, well, in a small town, right over there, post office. Miss it. Graham said, thanks very much. Oh, by the way, I'm Billy Graham. And I'm going to be doing a big revival. No. And the message is, where are you? How do you get to hell? No. Graham says, well, aren't you interested in how to get to heaven? Well, then you'll want to come tonight because I am going to explain how to get to heaven. The man looked at you don't even know how to get the post office. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not coming. <laughs> we, we have, we have all kinds of new stuff. Look at this. I, I can work that. Okay. Oops. We pushed the thing. We're off and running. We left off last week at Adam's deliberate willful choice to be with Eve, to 
be with Eve is very important. That's that scripture where God asked him, what is it that made you do this? And he said, his answer to God was to be with Eve. And we, we went over that last week a little bit, but I did not close the door on it. I have to clean it up. It's a little bit of housekeeping here. He went to be with Eve. But he left the door ajar. Remember the two trees. He chose to go with Eve when she made the decision to eat from the first tree of knowledge. But yet there was still another tree. If he goes to that tree with Eve, takes from that tree, then we are permanently separated from God. And he did not choose to do that, nor did she. And the big question is, what stopped him? What stopped Adam? We got the two trees. We have already gone down, but if we go over and take from that tree, we are permanently down, and something stopped him from doing it. And the question that you have to have solved before you can move on in Scripture is what stopped him? And what stopped her? I'm going to take the position because I have a typological view, or a typology view of Adam, is that what stopped Eve was, of course, Adam. Adam stopped Eve from eating from this tree. But what stopped Adam is the biggest question. You see, the big thing becomes is something, if you, if you have saved, Jesus saves us, we have salvation. It's Jesus' role to save us. And I have the typology between Adam and Eve and Adam and Jesus that something must save Eve. If she's the bride and we're the bride, then what saved her? Well, I say Adam saved her, okay? That's good, but how? How did Adam save her? What is it about not eating from this tree that saves Eve? That's a question that we're going to finish up with. Now, remember, they were driven out of the garden. I know some of you, I feel really bad. I want to go back and repeat last week's sermon already. I see a new face, one new face makes one. But no, they were driven out of the garden, thrown out of the garden, in order to keep them from eating from that tree. Once the decision was made not to eat it, God didn't trust them not to eat it, drove them out of the garden, and he places the cherubim, two of them, the highest order of angels, and a flaming sword. You read that scripture, if you're there. You read the scripture, and let's find it. How quickly can he find it? Oh, look how fast he goes. Genesis 3, 24. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way, to guard the way to the tree of life. Is that what your translation says? Everybody have that translation? Okay. Let's, let's change some words. Where you see place, place that with wealth. That's the same word as tabernacle. Where you see guard, replace that with the open. That is the Hebrew version of that scripture. If you go into the Hebrew Bible, you will find that they put place 
And they put dwelt. He dwelt. So he drove out the man and he dwelt. Cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep open the way to the tree of life. Which is a whole different interpretation, isn't it? But deal with that for a second. The point is, is that God is still dwelling here and instead of guarding uh, the tree of life, he is keeping a path to the tree of life still open. Now how does a flaming sword and two cherubim, cherubim set two guys? Keep that open. Big question. We're gone. Adam and Eve are out here. And they are what? Dying. Right? Ate from the tree of knowledge and they're now dying. What does that mean to Adam? What does death mean to Adam? I know what it means to you. You have been brought up in the Anchorage uh, public school system or whatever public school system, and you believe, if you have fallen into the, event, uh, sorry, the evolutionary doctrine, you believe that death is cessation of existence. That's what you believe. You believe that when you die, you will cease to exist. Did Adam think that? The other question is, is not only is what you shall surely die, remember you from that tree, you shall surely die, drives them out to keep them from eating from the tree of life so that that truth is still there. What does death mean to God? To both. What does death mean to Adam? What does death mean to God? I can guarantee you that it did not mean cessation of existence. Scream it louder. Yeah, I mean separate. You see, that's the whole point. Where is God? He is in here. Where is man? He is out here. We are now separated. That is what death means to God. That is his definition. Death to him means that you are separated from him. And Adam understood that. You got to realize that when he eats from the tree of life and he says, you shall surely die, that Adam knows what death is. It means that Eve is now separated from God. For how long? Eternally separated. Just like who? <coughs> Just like Satan. So, now I can, I can stop the physical by going over and eat this. Then that guarantees me that I am permanently separated from God. So Adam made a decision not to do it. Because he feared. He says, I'm afraid. What's he afraid of? Read back there. God said, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid. What was he afraid of? Well, we talked about that earlier. There's some judgment element there. He's afraid of judgment. But I think you can make a strong case that what Adam is afraid of is separation from God. He understands that he is now separated, and he does not think that's a good deal. He is afraid of that separation. Now, evaluate your own life. You are, in fact, what? Dying. You are, in fact, what? Dead. Says so. You are perfectly, if you can ever be perfect at anything, a perfect sinner. And you are, therefore, perfectly Separated. Do you fear that? Afraid of it? It bugs you? See, most of us, it doesn't, if you're honest. You know, we fear being separated from food, you know, from the TV, 
<laughs> you know, in my case, uh, years ago, the pool table, I, I feared that kind of separation from God. I never really had much of a relationship. But Adam did. He had a relationship, an incredible relationship, a perfect relationship. We've not had that. We can't have that yet. And he feared death because he understood what death was, and he stopped Eve. Even though he went to be with her, he chose to be with her, he stopped her from that permanent separation. He left the door ajar. And somehow, where is my imagination? Somehow, you know that I am going to end up saying this is a shadow of Christ. It foreshadows Christ in some way. This whole story does. Why? All stories must. All stories in Scripture, every page of Scripture, must in some way point to Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the book. So how does it shadow Jesus Christ? Where? Before I get there, let me say a couple of things. You've got a bunch of stories in Scripture, especially in Jesus, especially in Genesis. First story, of course, after creation is Adam and Eve, right? Second story is who? Cain and Abel. Third story is who? Enoch. Fourth story is Noah. Then comes Nimrod. Then comes Abraham and Lot. And Melchizedek. Then Sarah. Haven. And a whole bunch of stories. And we will have a test. Now, raise your hand if you But you took, or you, you got all those stories in. Sunday school class with John Maine, didn't you? That's what you did. You went through Sunday school class and you learned the stories of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Nimrod and Abraham and Lot and Melchizedek, Sarah and Hagar. In that order, I hope, because the Bible has a peculiar, not peculiar, particular order that's specific and very important and you've got to learn them in order and you've got to understand what they, they say about each other and how they relate to one another. But the most important thing that you can learn is that they somehow are a shadow of Christ. Somehow. In every one of those stories about every one of those people, there must be the shadow of Christ looming in that story. And I fear for you a lot, because I hear many, many stories. I watch late night. Some people watch TV, and they watch you know, the shows. But I don't. Matt Lori, all the time, I watch obscure very, very bad preachers. Okay. I do. I love it. <laughs> There's a guy, he's right, he sits at a chair, he sits down, I really want to try it sometime, and he sits at a desk, and he talks in a monotone that is just grossly bad. He's got a really bad haircut. <laughs> and he goes, he makes me look like a piker. I mean, he's over it for days. And there are thousands of people I wondered, who is this guy that is so bad with all these people? And I don't know you, but I watch him. It's amazing to me what he says, what they listen to, and what they believe. Okay, let's go ahead and make the notes. Okay, right, here we got Big A, Adam. Here we have Jesus. There must be a foreshadowing. And my point in that silly story about the guy is I listened to him do an entire sermon on Adam, and never once did he mention that there must be some typology between the two. There must be. Has to be. Scripture says there is. Adam, 
went into a deep sleep, didn't he? Out of a deep sleep comes Eve. She is created from that. Is, did he choose that sleep? <laughs> I think that's real. How's he feeling right about then? He's alone. Does he like being alone? Doesn't like being alone. Does God like him being alone? God does not like him being alone. It's the great no good from God. So does he choose to get out of this alone problem? I imagine he does. I imagine that he's lamenting to God, wait a minute, I'm alone. I don't like it. You don't like it. What are we going to do about it? And God says, well, let's participate in this decision and we will, I will take care of it for you. Does he know necessarily that it's Eve? I'm not sure that he did. But I'll bet you that he and God had decisions or he was involved in the decisions and he chose to go to sleep. A deep sleep. That's very important, by the way, as we go along. Did he give blood? Yes, he did. Out of his side, he gave blood. For who? For his bride and bone. And after that was done, he looked at her and said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You might not be able to write them all down here. She's a new supernatural creature brought to him. When he falls, he's not deceived. I have a very specific in Timothy. One or First Timothy two fifteen. Adam not deceived. Eve deceived. Not Adam. He's sinless at the time he falls, isn't he? Not deceived. Sinless. In my position is that he, what the Bible will say, the same thing. He takes responsibility for Eve's sin upon himself deliberately and willfully, with full knowledge of the consequences. And he becomes a sinner by choosing sin. He chooses death. He chooses to leave Eden to go with his wife. And the whole thing is about choice. We'll go back over it. Deep sleep. Gave blood. Bought a bone. New supernatural creature brought to him when she was completed. Not deceived. Heard her voice. God asked him, he says, at the very end, he, he, I'm sorry, at the very end, he says to Adam, then to Adam, God says, because you have eaten the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. And we have the curse of Adam. So what he did is he eated her voice. What did she say? <coughs> Where is her voice in there? You've read the story. Where is her voice? Where does Eve say anything other than to the serpent and to God? Where? What did she say? But God said, you heeded her voice. What do you think she said? She said, hey, I'm in a lot of trouble here. I'm separated from God. I'm dying. That's what she said, isn't it? And Adam heeded that voice. He chose to take on her sin on him. He, he took responsibility for it. Does God give him the ultimate responsibility? Who is blamed for this in Scripture? Adam is blamed for this. Adam has the responsibility of Eve's sin on him. 
And he chose to do that willfully and deliberately. It's all about choice, isn't it? Now look at Christ. Slept in a tomb, didn't he? Deep sleep in a tomb. Same thing. Gave blood. Gave blood. Here's side. Reach in the side of Christ, pull out the bride of Christ. Reach in the side of Adam, pull out the bride of Adam. Bone of bone, flesh of flesh. Does it say anything in Scripture that the bride of Christ is the bone of, uh, of his bones and the flesh of his flesh? It sure does. Same word, same terminology. Is the bride formed complete and then brought to him? Sure is. That's, my, that's a rapture position, by the way. Christ deceived by Satan? Nope. Adam deceived by Christ? Nope. Same typology, right? Christ sinless? It's like Adam. See, here I am. I've got a shadow. Don't I? Christ's shadow is looking over this whole story. They even call Jesus the what? The second Adam in Scripture. Does Jesus take responsibility for your sin willfully, deliberately, fully knowing the consequences because he's heeding your call because you are separated from God? Is that what he's doing for you? Is that his ministry? That is his ministry, isn't it? Does he choose to assume our sin? Does he choose to leave the Father? He does. Ephesians talks about that, calls it an incredible mystery, a great mystery. How in the world does the triune God separate, assume man's form, take responsibility for our sin, and stay man? How, that doesn't make sense to Paul, who wrote that. It's a great mystery. It's pretty simple to see why Adam went to save his wife. I would hope every husband in here would heed the call of his wife when she's in trouble. That's pretty simple. But how could God do that? Why? That's the great mystery. Now, a lot of people think that Adam is an idiot. If you've been here, you know that that's not my position. I see the shadowing, and I start to fit the pieces together. It must be significantly the same, because every story has to show Christ. Now, is Adam at Christ's level? No! How more perfect Christ's decisions were than Adam. There was a deliberate sin here. As we discussed last week. But let's talk about Jesus. There's a point in his life where he is in agony, isn't there? Where is that? Yell it out. The Garden of Gethsemane. He is in agony. He is sweating what? Blood. There's that blood thing. He's propping up. He is sweating blood and he is in agony. He is concerned. Is he worried about the physical problems that he's about to take on, the whipping, the crucifixion, the nails? Is that what he's worried about? Is that his agony? That would be our agony, wouldn't it? We'd be scared to death take that kind of a beating. But that's clearly not God. You think God through, how are you going to puncture God? And that's an immortal being there. How are you going to drive a nail through him? How are you going to pierce his side? How's his blood? Where's his blood? Cindy and I had fun discussions, by the way. Can his blood dissipate, decay, be eaten by bacteria? It can't, can it? That's God. That's a perfect, perfect man there. Powerful. Amazingly powerful. So what? How do you pierce his hands? 
You can't. That's Superman times a billion. You can't pierce his hands. So how does his hands get pierced? He says, he tells you how. He did. If he doesn't let you do it, it doesn't happen. He's involved in that process. So he's not afraid of the physical death, the physical punishment. He's part of the physical punishment. He must be. What's he afraid of? What is he agonizing for? He is agonizing over, obviously, separation from the Father. Read that story. He is about to separate from the Father. And he is agonizing over that. He is about to leave the Father in order to take responsibility, willfully and deliberately choosing to take responsibility for the sin of who? You, the bride. That is what he is about to do, and he is agonizing over that. Well, look here. If Christ is agonizing over that, do you think Adam agonized over that? There's Eve. She is sin. She is dying. And his decision is to go with her to keep her from being alone or stay with God. And if he goes with her, he is separated from God, just as she is. You think that that was an agonizing choice for that man? Definitely. That's a perfect man with a perfect relationship. He agonized over that. I think Christ demonstrated that agony in Gethsemane. Same story. Same story. And overlay the two stories. Very important to understand. How does this save Eve? How does going with Eve save Eve? And what does God think of Adam's decision making? Those are questions you have to begin to ponder. Does God like this decision? What were God's options when they sinned? Option number one, the option that we would have, I guarantee you, I, I know many, many men who have dogs, animals. A dog bites somebody in the family, what, what do they do with it? Take it out, boom. Everybody says, hey, you got a dog that bites, you shoot it. Get rid of it. Too dangerous. I have people that have sinned. What could God have done? End of people. He did not do it. Why not? Well, it's his nature. He is a God that loves people. He's a God that loved Adam and Eve. But also, the door was left ajar. How was the door left ajar? Well, the door was left ajar by Adam not going to the second tree and not letting Eve go to the second tree. And that is how Eve is saved. Because, you see, if you read the story, who gets cursed in this story? Satan gets cursed. Does Eve get cursed? <coughs> no. Does Adam get cursed? No. Satan gets cursed. What else gets cursed? The ground. The only cursing that occurs here is Satan and the ground. Adam and Eve, they escape the curses. How do they escape the curses? What did they do right? What did Adam do right? He obviously made a bad decision leaving God. But what did he do right? Well, we go on for hours there and we don't have time. Pay attention to the fact that he didn't make that second choice. He kept her from it and he saved her. So there you are, aren't you? You're in the same situation. Isn't that true? It is identical for you. 
you get to make the second choice too. You get to choose permanent separation from God also. Do you agonize over it? Now remember, this is an important thing. Oops, can't spell curse. Satan and the ground were cursed by God. Do you know that in Scripture there's only one thing that was ever cursed by Jesus Christ? Only one thing ever cursed by Jesus Christ. You know what that is? That is the fig tree. Boy, you see the fig tree, and something ought to go off in your head. Christ, in his entire ministry, does one thing. He curses one thing, and that is the fig tree. The only thing he curses. And he curses it because it didn't have any what? Figs. He was hungry, if you read the story. He comes up to a fig tree, and he looks at it and says, No figs. Boom. Curses it. Does it wither right away? No. It withers a little bit later. The the apostles come back, and they're mystified. How did he do that? Why did he do it? See, there's a key word there, isn't there? Fig what? Free. So what's the key word? Probably both. Figs show up in the story of Adam and Eve? They sure do. As what? Fig leaves. Right off the bat, in Adam and Eve, you have a lot of interesting things going on. Let me go find it. Somewhere in here. Oops, I put two pages. No, there I am. A lot of interesting things going on in Adam and Eve. Just like all those other people I mentioned, you have a bunch of things going on in Genesis that are in order. Six or seven of them. The first thing in Genesis that you have to have an opinion on is God's image. God's image is very important. What does God's image mean? If you've been here, you know that we think that that is choice. The second thing that happens, now this is post-creation, by the way. The second thing that happens there is the creation of Eve. The creation of the bride. That's a significant event in Genesis and in this story. You've got to understand what it means. What happened there? The third thing that's important to understand is the temptation, the choices, the two trees, the fact that Adam was not deceived. Trees and choices. What happened there? The temptation. All of that. Then, comes the fig leaves. The fig leaves come in. As Adam and Eve made a decision, Adam probably made the decision, to cover himself with fig leaves. And God said, no, that's not going to work. He takes the fig leaves off and kills two creatures, probably what? Lambs. Takes those skin coverings and puts them with that blood on Adam and Eve and says to Adam, fig leaves are not going to cut it. The only way that we can atone for sin is a substitution and blood. We've got to have blood. Blood is very, very important. Must have it. Takes the fig leaves off, puts the blood on. That's what God does. Now, did Adam and Eve participate in any of that? Did they hunt the animals down? No. Did they take the animals and string them up? No. Did they kill the animals? No. Did they, did they do anything? No. Who did all of that? God did all of that. Adam and Eve had no part in the covering of their sin. 
All done by God. Very, very important because this ultimately is a discussion on what? What are we discussing? What's our subject? Oh, stay with me. We are studying grace and law. Now, one last thing before we move on. Isn't it amazing that we're going on? See, you have to come to church here. It's an important thing you must do. You must keep all bulletins. Bulletins are very, very important. <laughs> if you don't keep the bulletin, see somebody comes, and every week I get it. I get it every week. How come we never got to the, to the, to the scripture references? He never did it. He never got to the book. Well, here I am. See, if you'll just keep them, and if you'll keep it, uh, this would be uh, March 1st. So everybody who has March 1st scripture <laughs> reference, pull it out. Take it home and laminate it. And here we are. We are in Exodus. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and the children shall belong to the master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then the master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. That is Exodus 21, 2 through 6. And that is critical in the typology of Adam and how it foreshadows Christ. See, you should pick up key words. Slave, six years, seven, comes alone, goes out alone, white, master, chooses. Same story, isn't it? And look at Christ in that story. Six years he shall serve. And I'll be made to serve longer. Six years. And I'll be made to serve longer than six thousand years, because if you read Peter, first Peter, the year is as a thousand gone, right? I'm in a redemptive week. Yay, I got it back in. I have six thousand years that who can serve? It's Christ. He is the perfect Hebrew slave, you see. But on the seventh, on the seventh thousand year, he should go free. Now, what year? When's that for you? That's the millennial rule, isn't it? He'll go free on the 7,000 years. He should go out as a free man without payment. See, Christ came, and we have 6,000 years, but on the 7th, he could go, couldn't he? He doesn't have to stay. He doesn't have to be a slave for you anymore. He can go. And it says, if he comes alone, he should go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife should go out with him. In other words, if he came with the wife, he can take her with him. Did Jesus come with the wife? No wife. He pulls himself out of the Father, becomes a slave, and it says so in Philippians. If you read that, you see that those two start to tie together. He comes as a slave for us, a bond servant. He served 6,000 years. He came alone. If his master gives him a wife, did God give Jesus a wife? 
He did. It's you. If God gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to who in, in Exodus 21 through, through 6? Shall belong to the master. And if he goes out, he goes out alone. The bond servant. But if he says, no, I love my wife. I want to stay with my wife. And the ceremony took place in ancient Jerusalem where they took this Hebrew slave and the judges of the city got together and they put a scar in his ear. Very important that he have a scar. And now he is forever a bondservant to that master. Now there's an element in it that says he loves the master. But think about this in your own environment. What are the odds that you're going to love your master if you're a slave? How many good masters? How many good bosses are there? Let's just start with that. Odds are you're not going to love your boss. You're not going to love your master. So what was happening most of the time with those Hebrew slaves that chose to do Exodus 21 through 6? Why were they doing that? See, they came alone. They were only going to stay six years. But wait a minute. The master, he gives them a wife. And they love the wife, and they love the children. Now it's time to go. If they go, they go out alone. Who keeps the wife? Master does. So what is the Hebrew slave? What's his choices? He gives up his freedom to be with his wife. Is that what God did? Is that what Jesus did? That is what Jesus did. It's the same story as Adam and Eve. He gave up his freedom. He is the perfect Hebrew slave. Remember that no one could ever recognize Jesus after he was resurrected. He would always do things for them. He would break bread. And when they saw him break bread, they would recognize him. Why would they recognize him? Because they saw his hands. And his hands had scars on them, didn't they? They were pierced, weren't they? Christ didn't have his ear pierced, but he had his hands and his feet pierced. The whole point of that is to fulfill Exodus 21 through 6, among other reasons. So there he is. And, and finally he begins to tell you that in Luke 24. He says, hey, look, it's me. Look at my hands and my feet. See the scar? See the piercing? I chose to come be with you and forever with you. See, that's a big important question there. Christ was not always human. He's only been human the last 1,900 years. He could choose to go back to not being human. And he doesn't. He chooses to stay with his brother. Why does he do? Yeah. We got to say something. I'm not going to say something. We are moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> Read Philippians 2, 6 through 8, and you get a chance. As it talks about Exodus 21, 2 through 6. And I'll back up someday and do that more justice. But here we are in Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock 
and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fell? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain and Abel. What's going on? Cain and Abel. It's not fair. Cain's a perfectly nice guy. Came in with a perfectly nice offering. God rejected it. Cain got mad. Killed Abel. It's the story where God picks favorites. God so unfair, unjust, and evil without good judgment. There is not a theologian that I can find. I looked. I've only got maybe a dozen in that office. If I could get on the internet and use the machine, I might be able to find one. But I could not find a single theologian anywhere who would say something contrary to this. And this is Cain and Abel were twins. That is the dominant majority position out there in theology. Cain and Abel were twins. Who's the oldest twin? Cain. Who's the youngest twin? Abel. They are twins. Cannot find a theologian who will say otherwise. Now, how many of you have heard that before? I kept it on Cindy. He's pretty darn scary. Well, one. Now you know. The majority position is they are twin brothers. So now begin to anticipate what kind of relationship they have. How old are they when this story goes? How old are Cain and Abel when this story begins? Ten? See, some would say something obvious. Remember, I'm going to tell you that there is a foreshadowing in every single story. Who's the shepherd in this story? Abel is the shepherd. Is Christ the shepherd? Okay, I'm beginning to see now I have a connection right there between Abel and Christ. Was Christ killed by his brethren? Sure was. Abel killed by his brother? Sure was. How old was Christ when he was killed? 33. So how old do you think I'm going to save these two guys off? 33. These are not a couple of kids here. These are not a couple of young men, in my opinion. Let me say that forcefully. In my opinion, these are two men in their 30s. Probably exactly the same age as Christ because of this typology right here. And they are twins. And up to here, so you end up with another wonderful question if you take that position as I lead you down the path for another seven minutes. How many offerings have we had up to this point? None. One. This was the first time that we have a sacrifice to God. These guys are 33 years old. This is their first church service? No, probably not. How many offerings have we had up to this point? A lot. Every Sunday? Once a year? Where is it happening? How is it 
Who decided to do this? Who made the decision that we're going to get together and we're going to have an offering to God? Who made that decision? God? Did he command it? you see it anywhere in there? Somehow we have an offering occurring. We have a church service, don't we? And we have an offering on a specific day. See, if you read that, it says, and some of you have, and at the end of days, don't you? You don't have in the process of time. I read in the process of time. How many have at the end of days? At the end of days is more correct of the two translations. At the end of days. What days? How many days? Every every week? Every year? I'll give you the majority position real fast. It is every year this offering occurs. Every year we have this sacrifice. On what day every year do you think we have this sacrifice? Oh, by the way, do you think this is still going on? You start beginning to believe, understand how the Bible is laid all over the top of itself all the time. Do we have a particular celebration in the Hebrew faith every year that is sacrificial, that is about the atonement and the sacrifice for sin? We still have one. Do you think it's happening on the same day as Cain and Abel did? Probably it is, because that's the kind of guy God is. He likes to do things in perfect order, doesn't he? So let's assume that that's the same thing. What do we call that, by the way? We call that Yom Kippur, don't we? Today. Well, let's assume that we have the same thing happening once a year. So how many of these have these guys gone through if they're 33 years old? They've gone through at least 33. How old were they for the first 10? Not very old. Probably didn't understand it. So who did it for them? Adam and Eve did it for them. And why didn't Adam and Eve bring fig leaves? Because Adam and Eve already knew fig leaves weren't going to work, didn't they? They tried the fig leaf thing, and they said, what well, didn't happen? What do we got to bring? Lambs. Got to bring blood, don't we? Takes blood to atone for sin. Where do you think this is happening, by the way? Probably happening right there, right at the gateway to the Garden of Eden, where the flaming sword. And the two cherubs are. That's probably where it's happening, isn't it? Wouldn't that make sense? So how many times did Cain get this thing right? Thirty-two times. Thirty-two times he brought a lamb, didn't he? You take my position that he's 33 years old. Now all of a sudden, he doesn't want to bring a lamb. He wants to bring fruit. Why is he doing that? Why that change? Why that? What does he think is going to happen? By the way, how do you think God respected or accepted those things? Here we have, here we have the land. If you will land, I'm wrong. If you will land. Beautifully done. He's masterful at drawing lambs. See, people listen to that tape and they will not know what's on the board. So if you will quit laughing, we're in good shape. There's my cute little lamb. Cute, pretty little lamb. Little bow. Right up on the leash, sat in there. Back the way. I don't think God accepted that. Fire in the hole, right? Elijah. I love him. What he did, didn't he? He did with Elijah. Assumes that lamb with fire from heaven. Here comes the fruit. New fruit. 
There's the fruit. You get anything there? Fire come down from heaven? No fire. But it says. Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. See, he's pretty obvious. I got my fruit there. I got your lamb there. We're all standing back here going like this. Boom goes the lamb. The fruit's still there. Cain is not a happy camper. It's gone 32 years. He's brought a lamb. Or somebody brought a lamb for him. Now he brings fruit, and that fire doesn't go off like it has for the last 32 years. Doesn't happen. What's wrong? Why did it make change up to this point? They are identical people. Everything is going fine. Who's the firstborn? Cain is. Okay? Keep all of that in mind. There's a wonderful word for Cain's offering. I can spell it. There's an N in it. Mincha is the Hebrew word for offering. Get up there and you read, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. The word there is mincha. What does it mean? It means an offering of gratitude. An offering of gratitude, acknowledging God as provider, Spencer of blessings. That's what that word means. Cain brought an offering of gratitude, acknowledging God as the dispenser of blessings, and God did not accept it. What do you think's happening to your tithe money? God did not accept it. He brought an offering. Acknowledging God. Not accepting. But Abel's what? Extremely complex story. We do not have time to finish. Next week, we will begin to finish typology of Cain and Abel and what really happened in this story and why, what is the way of Cain? See, it says in Scripture that there is a way of Cain. What is that? We'll get into all of them. Hey, send them home, big Al.